You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. A short passage this afternoon, looking at verses 13 through 16. Jesus has transitioned from his Galilean ministry uh, to begin his journey toward Jerusalem. And so he sent out his 72 others, not the disciples themselves, but 72 others, disciples who were to enter into the surrounding towns before he gets there and to offer them a message of peace. However, he also warned them that some will reject their offer. Some will not respond uh, positively to the message that they give. And so our text this afternoon could have easily been added on to the end of that, uh, of last week's sermon. It's really just primarily the, the, the primary purpose of it is to illustrate that last idea, the, to illustrate the warning that is given to those who reject uh, the message or to, it's the warning that is, that is given to unrepentant cities. So what is to be done to those who reject the message of the gospel? That's the, the question before us. What is to be done to those who reject the message of the gospel? Well, this passage, passage instructs us to warn them. They're to be warned that they have rejected God's mercy, and if they remain unrepentant, that they will suffer his wrath. And I believe that just as God can use miraculous works to bring about uh, conversion, as he has done throughout the Gospel of Luke, we've seen, he can also work through these warnings of judgment. I think God does use that fear to, to, uh, to bring people to the serious nature of the consequences of rejecting him. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the difficult passages as well. In, in this case, Lord, this uh, challenge of a woe to those who are unrepentant. Lord, it's, a, it's not a message that our culture receives well. It's not a message that, that we even in, uh, relish in hearing. The thought that we would have to share that warning with loved ones or those that we're witnessing to who reject the gospel, Lord, it's a um, it's a it's a heavy burden, and so I pray that you would fill us with compassion, that you would fill us with hearts that desire to speak the truth in love, and as we engage in different evangelistic opportunities this summer. As we've been gathering for prayer all last week and continuing to think about these evangelistic opportunities, we want to trust uh, that you will not only use the, the powerful message of the gospel um, to draw people to repentance, but that you would also use the warnings that they might hear uh, when they reject the gospel, that that warning might resound in their ears until they respond in repentance. Lord, we pray that you would use this message to convict us and to challenge us, to honor you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me Luke chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the, wor- the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than it will be 
for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Amen. This is God's holy word. So the opening section here, we'll look at verses 13 through 15, that, that whole paragraph there of a deserving judgment. In verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. First of all, let's understand what it means to, have, to, to speak of a woe. What does it mean to give a woe of judgment? These are statements that you could describe as um, uh, miseritude. It's the opposite of a beatitude. Beatitude is to give a blessing, right? Blessed or happy are those who, uh, a miseritude, or you hear the word misery there, it's, it's to be a statement of sadness, to describe sadness. So Leon Morris says, woe is not a call for vengeance, but an expression of deep regret. Uh, woes are oftentimes related to God's enemies, but it can also be used as a warning against living self-centered lives as we see in Luke chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. So, that's, so a woe is not just to the unrepentant, but it is also something that is given to the church on several occasions. Jesus oftentimes directed his woes toward the Pharisees, to the religious hypocrites, but he also uses a language when speaking to his disciples who ought to beware of the danger of causing another to sin. So something that we should all hear, right? Paul declared, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So it's used as a, a warning against sin within the covenant community. And then finally, the term woe is, is also used to describe a personal conviction for sin or a sense of unworthiness. And you find that in Isaiah uh, chapter 6 and, and Jeremiah 10, 19, this um, woe is me a man of unclean lips. That's Isaiah's response uh, to the holiness and glory of God. So in that case, it's a, it's a warning that leads to repentance rather than a declaration of certain judgment. That's how Isaiah meant the term woe. It was a, a woe that led him to a repentant spirit. So Isaiah's woes against Israel are eventually replaced with statements of comfort, right? Comfort, comfort to my people. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 2. So what is this meaning here? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. What happened there in Chorazin and Bethsaida? These were cities that Jesus had been actively ministering in. And so he's giving them as an illustration. He's telling the 72 disciples, you're going to go out into these cities, and then you're to, um, you know, even... You're to, to go out into the streets of the town that rejects you, that doesn't receive you, and... And then you're to declare, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. And now as an example of that kind of declaration, he speaks to Chorazin and Bethsaida as examples of places that will be judged for rejecting the message that Christ brought into their midst. So these were cities that Jesus had been actively ministering in. We actually don't have any example of Jesus ministering in Chorazin. This is the only verse we have, uh, the only verse that ever mentions this city. That, doesn't, that obviously doesn't mean that he didn't go there. 
this verse indicates that he did go there and that he did many mighty works there. But not everything that he did is recorded. And as the Gospel of John concludes, he says, if we did record everything that Jesus did, we wouldn't have enough room to contain the library, to contain the volumes of his work. So based upon this verse, we do know that he visited and did many mighty works there. And then with Bethsaida, we we do know that at least uh, the feeding of the 5,000 was done there. That was where they were in the previous chapter, Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. It says that they came, uh, they withdrew to a part to a town called Bethsaida. So what happened in Tyre and Sidon? Because that's what Jesus compares them to. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. So who are Tyre and Sidon? Well, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you've heard them quite a bit. Tyre and Sidon were dominant cities that were located in the land of Canaan. So they were neighbors of the Israelites, um, and they were positioned along the Mediterranean coastline, which made them a, a very successful and wealthy um, wealthy nations. They were prosperous cities um, that had really little regard for Israel. Isaiah gave an oracle of judgment concerning Tyre and Sidon in Isaiah 23. And after describing the devastation that would lay the city to waste, uh, he declares that it is God who had purposed to destroy the place because of their pompous pride. Um, Ezekiel also prophesied against the prince of Tyre and the king of Tyre, which is probably a reference to the same ruler or leader of, of Tyre, uh, But he prophesies against him whose great wisdom and wealth had swelled up with so much pride that he thought of himself as a god. He thought of himself as a deity, as divine. And so Ezekiel laments over the king of of Tyre whose fall from grace illustrates the love of money and the use of wisdom for vain purposes. Uh, Ezekiel follows that up with a prophecy against Sidon for their contempt of Israel. Amos also opens his book of oracles and visions with the denunciation of Tyre for her cruelty and disloyalty to Israel. So probably establishing at some point a covenant with Israel and then um, rejecting that covenant or going against that covenant that they made. You have also examples in Jeremiah and Joel and Zechariah all speaking words of condemnation against Tyre. And Sidon, and so these these are cities that the original audience would have been f- very familiar with. They have heard um, words of negative judgment against them throughout the Old Testament. But here, what Jesus is doing is he's comparing two cities that are Jewish cities to Tyre and Sidon, and he's saying, "Woe is you, because the judgment that will fall upon you is greater." or it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon than for the judgment that will come upon you. Had Jesus' miracles of healing been done in Tyre and Sidon, repentance would have occurred long ago. And repentance here is linked to sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So what does that mean? Kids, think about this. What does it mean to sit in sackcloth and ashes? Well, sackcloth was this rough cloth made from goat's hair. It would have been extremely uncomfortable. It's not something you would have made into a nightgown and slept in. It is a very uncomfortable fabric. Uh, 
And then they would have taken the ashes and they would have either placed them on their head or they would have sat on these ashes. Again, it's just an uncomfortable experience all around. They would have felt dirty and, and uncomfortable. It symbolized their grief, but it was also customary for Jews to endure this uncomfortable practice by way of illustrating how sincere their repentance was. And so outward signs of repentance like this are not, in fact, what God is calling us to. He's always looking at the heart, but these were outward signs that what was in their heart was genuine, what was true. So it points to the idea that true repentance can be demonstrated by our actions, that we can demonstrate a heart of repentance. It goes on to verse 14, but it will be more bearable in the judgment of Tyre and Sidon than for you. So this passage admits that there will be degrees of judgment. Uh, their judgment would be more severe because their knowledge was more full. We'll see this again in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 48, where we read, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what, deserved a, um, and did what deserves a beating will receive a light beating. So the one who does it knowing the will of their master and continues to disobey receives a more severe beating than the one who disobeys without knowing um, the, full, the fullness of the master's will. That's what he's describing here. He's saying, woe to the cities who have been in Israel, who have heard the message, who have seen and witnessed the miraculous work of Jesus and still do not follow him. And still reject him. Woe to them. Their, their judgment will be more severe because they have a greater knowledge of the mercy of God and they still refuse to accept it. Verse 15 um, goes to another city. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Capernaum receives a lot of attention because that was the, really the headquarters of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Uh, they witnessed many of his miraculous works as well. They were presumptuous, however. Right? They thought, well, because of all the things that they were able to witness, that they knew God, that he had favor upon them. And yet Jesus says their end will be Hades. This language is very similar to Isaiah's judgment of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14. Hades is a place of torment where the souls of believers go after their death to wait their final judgment. It is distinguished from hell. It's not the exact same, but as far as how much of the distinction people understood is, is not clear. They, Hades and hell are oftentimes um, you know, used together, um, but, and they're used in similar ways to describe places of punishment for the wicked. So Greg Bill says, what is striking is that the warnings that were once directed against Israel's neighbors are now applied to Israel as they too refuse to acknowledge their God. It's a reversal of the promises. The promises that have been given to Israel are now being received by Gentiles and the, and the judgments that had been given to the nations, the Gentiles, was now being given to Israel. A total reversal has happened under the new covenant. This is why his teaching was, was rejected by so many because they were just entirely unfamiliar with the concept of hearing 
I mean, they, they shouldn't have been, in fact. I mean, the prophets had been giving them judgment throughout, uh, but, they, but they somehow set themselves up as, as being um, uh, deserving of grace and mercy and, and uh, even despite the fact that they were not repentant. So to, to bring this to just a, an application for us, there's really nothing casual here about presenting the offer of the gospel. It's not merely one option among many that you can believe, right? Well, you rejected Jesus. Maybe you'll reject the next guy that comes through and declare and, and ask you to follow him. That's clearly not an option here. God has revealed himself in his holy, inerrant, and inspired word, and all that he has revealed points to Jesus as the only way, the only truth, and the only life unto salvation. So this message is hard to swallow for a culture that rejects objective morality and truth and, and wants to allow people to believe whatever they want to believe. And so therein lies the dilemma for us, for the believer who is called to share the gospel with others. Right? Because we can either shrink back from the task in fear of man, or we can accept the responsibility and declare the truth in love. And that means that we, we will need to be sincere. We will need to be heartfelt in our pleading with the lost, recognizing that eternity is at stake. This isn't meant to make us cold and callous in our declaration of, of God's truth. It's not meant to make us pompous and proud. It's meant to give us a compassion and a heart of um, sincerity as we share the truth. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we, we spend time confessing our sin. It's a moment where we are reminded that all of life is to be one of repentance for the true believer. And so as we see here a city that was unrepentant, we are reminded that we are to be continually, constantly repenting, recognizing how we have fallen short, coming once again at the foot of the cross and asking the Lord to pardon us. Calvin says, as, as men testify by this ceremony, um, and what he's referring to is the ceremony of this sac- sitting in sackcloth and ashes, as men testify by this ceremony their sorrow and grief, it must be prece- preceded by hatred of sin, fear of God, and mortification of the flesh. According to the words of Joel 2.13, rend your hearts and not your garments. Right? It's always got, it's the internal repentance that is necessary. We can do all the right things outwardly and not have a heart that is truly repentant. So whenever repentance is proven to be lacking, and that might be through outright denial, like some people just deny the, to, um, to believe or repent, or by their lifestyle, by their failure to bear fruit, they prove that they are unrepentant. What needs to follow that is a declaration of judgment. They need to hear the, and feel the, the weight of their rejection of Christ. Hell is not an easy topic to consider, but it cannot be avoided if people are going to consider the weight of the choice before them. And this isn't simply our judgment. That's what he makes clear in verse 16. This is a divine judgment. It's not just a judgment that these cities deserved, but it's a judgment that comes from God himself. The one who hears you hears me. Again, remember he's speaking to these 72 disciples. (coughs) The one who hears you hears me. 
the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So three different elements to this sentence or this verse. The one who hears you hears me. First of all, this is a recognition that the disciples were required to speak the message that Jesus had given them. They weren't to go off and, and speak their own truth. They were to speak the message that Jesus gave them. And as long as they faithful, faithfully proclaimed the words of Christ, then his words were effectively multiplied by the number of disciples he sent out, the number of disciples he had appointed. And so the work that he is doing is actually more effective because it is his words going through these disciples. Right? He can multiply his, um, his work. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. So when we faithfully proclaim Christ, we know that people are not only rejecting us, but they're also rejecting him. And primarily, they're rejecting him. Jesus is identifying himself with his disciples in such a way that he experiences what they experience. This is a, a wonderful reminder of our union with Christ. R.C. Sproul says, So committed is Christ to his disciples, so closely does he identify with them that to abuse a disciple of Christ is seen by God as an abuse of Christ himself. So what we experience, he experiences. And then finally, the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So if the message of the disciples is rejected, they are rejecting the one who sent them, Jesus. If they reject Jesus, they reject the one who sent him, which is his father. Right? This is a divine judgment. To reject the son is to reject the father who sent him. Therefore, the evangelist is God's ambassador. He is sent out directly from Christ. And when an ambassador is mistreated, it is a rejection of the one who commissioned him to go. If we were to receive an ambassador from another nation and mistreat that ambassador, we are dishonoring the one who sent him. That's, that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples before he sends them out or as he sends them out. He's saying, go in the confidence that you have a message given from me, and if they reject you, they're rejecting me. Jesus testifies here as well that when we sit under the preaching of God's word, we are hearing from him. John Calvin argues that to hear the preaching of the gospel accurately delivered is like hearing the message directly from heaven. It's as if angels are bringing to us the word of God or that he is descending to bring the word to us himself or that we can hear his voice coming down from heaven. That's how, how confident we can be in the message that we hear. And so this ought to stir us up to sit under preaching as often as we can. And it's probably why Calvin emphasized preaching so much. He preached five to seven times a week on average. So again, this passage reminds us that the judgment that they receive was a deserving one. And that warning that we are to give is not just a warning, a personal warning, of our rejection of someone, but it's a divine judgment upon them. And so it's not an option for us to just hold that back. But in our delivery of that judgment, we should be filled with hearts of compassion and um, 
and with tears declare to them the judgment and wrath that awaits if they remain unrepentant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we